We are still making our way through the Acts of the Apostles, and so I want to invite you to turn again there this evening and to the ninth chapter. Acts 9, and I want to read to you from verse 1 down to verse 31. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Father, we pray that we might go on tonight in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and that our faith would continue to increase and that our numbers would continue to increase, that people would come to Christ in our city as we go out and speak boldly like your early church did, like Saul did. Help us as we think about his conversion, this remarkable thing, to be amazed at your power your sovereignty, your kindness to us in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we consider tonight this newly converted man called Saul, I just want to fast forward a little bit with you into the rest of the New Testament and read to you some of the things that he would later write about how people come to Christ about how people are converted, about how sinners are saved. Let me just read to you some of the things that Paul says about that. First of all, Romans 9.16, he says, It, meaning salvation, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is not about our willing or our running. It's about God and his mercy. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. He says repentance is granted by God. Philippians 1, 29 He says to the church in Philippi, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So it is God who grants repentance, 2 Timothy 2. It is God who grants that we would believe in Christ, Philippians 1. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him, that is in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. He chose us. And Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. The question is, why does Saul write that way? Why does Saul sometimes major so much on the sovereignty of God in man's salvation? Why does he use words like chose and predestined, and before the foundation of the world. Doesn't he know how controversial those things are among so many Christians? I mean, churches have sometimes split, and great damage has been done, and many of God's people have been deeply scarred because 
of the mishandling from both sides of the fence, really, of verses like these from the pen of the Apostle Paul, or Saul as we know him in Acts 9. So why does he sometimes speak so directly about the fact that God's will and not man's will is determinative in human salvation? Why does Paul speak like that? Well, first of all, simply because it's true. Saul didn't invent the doctrines of election and predestination. He didn't invent the idea of God's sovereignty in man's salvation or God's grace being irresistible. He's just repeating the same sorts of things that Jesus said and the other apostles said and that we find in the Old Testament as well. That's the main reason why Saul speaks so clearly on these issues of God's sovereignty and salvation because he's simply echoing the teaching of the rest of the Bible. But I think we've seen tonight in Acts chapter 9 that perhaps there's another reason why Paul spoke the way he did about God being the one who grants faith and repentance, about salvation not depending on man's willing or man's running, about being chosen and predestined by God. We've seen in Acts 9 why he might speak that way because these very truths were Saul's life. We saw it, didn't we? The only reason he ever came to Christ, the only reason he was forgiven of his sins, the only reason he was made a new man in Jesus, the only reason why he is in heaven today worshiping around the throne with those in Revelation chapter 4 was because there is a God in heaven who did not leave Saul's salvation up to Saul's will and who doesn't leave ours up to us but intervenes to save people by sovereign electing mercy and love. If there was ever a man who was living proof that salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, if there was ever a man who demonstrates that that's true, surely it would be Saul of Tarsus, right? In fact, it seems to me that we could really use that verse, Romans 9.16, as the thesis statement for this whole passage tonight. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That's the message of Acts 9, at least this first 31 verses of it. Saul was willing and Saul was running in all the wrong directions. And yet, God saved him. Just think that out with me from this passage. Here is Saul on his way to Damascus to do what? To make inquiry into the facts of Christianity? Is he going there to see if these Christians might be on to something? To ask them a few questions? To hear them out? To listen to the preacher on a Sunday morning? Is he going there to try to discover how God might help him with his anger issues? No, none of that, right? Saul isn't going to Damascus looking for answers. He's not looking for help. And he's certainly not looking to find Jesus. Saul is not a seeker. Except that like the devil, he is in Acts 9 seeking someone to devour. That's what he's doing. His mind is already made up against Jesus and against his people. And he is going to Damascus simply to round them up, verses 1 and 2, and drag them back to Jerusalem, presumably to stand trial like Stephen had done, and presumably for some of them to end up with Stephen's fate, dead on the ground. Saul is the last person in the world that you would expect to come to Jesus because he's not looking for Jesus. He's not looking for forgiveness. He's not looking for answers to life's questions. He's not looking for anything else noble or profitable either. And yet, 
Though he sets out for Damascus in that way, he arrives in Damascus a completely different man. How do we explain that? Well, even if we didn't have the events recorded here in verses 3 and following, the rest of the Bible would tell us the answer, right? How does a man who has no will to turn to God, how, is, how does a man who is running from God, not to God, how does a man like that end up converted to Christ? Well, not because of the man. Not because of his willing or because of his running, but because of God who has mercy. God has the power to intervene and completely change the hardest heart. God seeks sinners even when they are not seeking him. That's one of the points of Acts 9. And God always gets the fish over the side and into the boat, doesn't he? He doesn't let Saul or anyone else get away. That's the only explanation for a change like this one. God intervened in Saul's life, even though Saul wasn't looking for any intervention. And of course, we know that not only because we know our theology, but because we also see those facts in black and white and red as well here on the pages of Acts chapter 9. Saul is not looking for Jesus, but it's clear that Jesus, beginning in verse 3, it's clear that Jesus is looking for Saul. And when he appears to Saul on the road, you'll notice that one of the first words that comes out of Saul's mouth is to recognize that the one who is speaking to him, verse 5, is Lord. Did you notice that? Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? It's, like he, it's almost like he knows, but he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know exactly who it is, but somehow he knows that he is Lord. And when Jesus tells Saul who he is by name in verse 5, and then gives him instructions in verse 6, notice that Saul immediately obeys what he's told in verse 8. Jesus told him to get up and enter the city, verse 6. In verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He did what Jesus said, and not simply, I think, because, well, he was blind and confused, and so, of course, he was going to go into Damascus, but he listened to the voice of Jesus, and he obeyed it because it seems to me that his heart in that moment had already been changed. We see evidences of this change, it seems to me, in the verses that follow as well. Not only does he get up and go into the city, verse 8, just as Jesus told him to do, but he also begins to pray in verse 11 and evidently to fast as well in verse 9. He's a new man. The lion has been tamed. And as soon as he has opportunity to be baptized, in verse 18, he is. And then we read in verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. He's a new man. Don't you find this a fascinating and hope-giving series of events? I do. In the morning, Saul is praying on the church like a lion. But by afternoon, he's praying to the Lord like a lamb. 
One day, this man Saul is, verse 1, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And half a week later, he is gladly among their number as a disciple himself. And very soon, he begins breathing not threats, but sermons. This man who once wrote letters or once asked for letters about God's people seeking permission to arrest them like criminals, will become God's chosen instrument to write letters to God's people to instruct and encourage them in the Lord, which letters we still are blessed by even down to this day. And I just ask again, how on earth does this happen? How does it happen? How does it happen so quickly, so completely? How on earth? Well, it happens on earth because there is a God in heaven who sovereignly intervenes in the affairs of men and who saves not based on how willing we are, but according to his will and his plan. Jesus said it like this in John six thirty seven: All that the Father gives me will come to me. He doesn't just say that the easy ones will come or the ones whose hearts aren't too hard will come or the ones who are already somewhat willing will come. But he says all that the Father gives me will come to me. And if there was ever a man whose conversion colorfully illustrates that fact, it is Saul of Tarsus. God had given Saul to Jesus as a chosen instrument, verse 15, of the Lord's. And so he will Come to Jesus. God will intervene radically to make it so. Now, it doesn't always or even usually happen to people this suddenly or drastically, right? Most people, not all, but most people are brought out of darkness and into the light more gradually, step by step, incrementally. And because that's usually how it happens it may seem to us that it actually is, in many cases, the human will that is decisive in a person's coming to Christ. Because maybe you weren't bowled over by Jesus all of a sudden like Saul, so that you were changed in a moment from being a hater of God to a lover of God, and you don't even hardly know how it happened. Maybe for you, you really did decide to come to Jesus in a thoughtful process over time, and you can actually remember how you were thinking and when it happened. And I don't debate for one minute that you remember correctly and that you did decide for Jesus and that your thoughts did begin to change and so on. But the question is, did that change of heart, though it was much more thoughtful and drawn out over time than was Saul's, did that change of heart require any less of the intervention of God? If we think so, maybe it's just because we haven't given God enough credit for each of the little steps along the way. Or maybe it's because we often underestimate just how averse to the one true God our natural hearts really are, even if we're good, quote-unquote, moral people. God doesn't let most of us get as far gone as Saul was, but even if before Christ we were just distracted by our entertainment or really into our careers or, or convinced that we would go to heaven on the strength of our own humaneness, But somehow upstanding people, we still weren't seeking God any more than Saul was, were we? Because as Saul would later write, quoting the Old Testament, there is none who seeks for God. 
So whether you or I were saved suddenly, radically, like Saul, or slowly and incrementally, whether you were once a persecutor of the church or a so-called upstanding citizen or anywhere in between, there is none who seeks for God. And so if you are saved, it is because God did something. God intervened through a series of circumstances, maybe over a short period of time, maybe over a long period of time, maybe in an instant. But God is the one who intervened to change your heart. You willed and ran to Christ, yes, but only because God first showed mercy to change your will and reorder your steps. Salvation is always an intervention of God. Salvation never depends ultimately on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And as I said before, I find that doctrine hope-giving. It can be controversial, but I find it hope-giving, especially as we find it on grand display here in the conversion of Saul. Because perhaps there are some Saul's in your own life. Perhaps you know some people who seem so opposed to Jesus and so opposed to the church that it almost seems hopeless to try to speak to them or pray for them. And if salvation were really up to man's willing and man's running, frankly, I would tell you that it would be hopeless to speak to and pray to certain people. But the events of Acts 9 should remind us that God could so radically intervene in that person's life that you could arrive home tonight 45 minutes from now and have a voicemail from that very antagonist weeping on the phone and telling you that she's become a Christian. Do you believe that God can do that? If salvation is really up to him and not to the souls of the world, then there's nothing that says that he can't do that. And there's nothing that says that he can't, even if he doesn't bring them over to Christ all at once, slowly but surely change the heart of that person that you may be thinking of right now. Maybe one day there will be just a little crease in the armor, a little softening of the heart toward God, but God will work on that crease and it will gradually expand and grow until the arrows of God's love have a huge target and begin to pour in one right after the other, and you'll eventually find yourself at the most unlikely baptismal service you could ever imagine. Have you been at a baptismal service and just sat in the audience thinking, I never thought this day would come? It can be an amazing thing. For some of you, the person or the baptismal service perhaps was your own. I spoke to you earlier as if trying to convince you that it really was God's willing and not your own that brought you step by step to Jesus. But some of you didn't need convinced of that, right? Some of you can look back in your life and see how, were it not for the interventions of grace, you'd have never come to Christ of your own volition. You didn't want to come to Christ. And perhaps even when you realized that you were being drawn to him, you could hardly believe yourself that you were going along with this. And the last person whose baptism you ever imagined you might someday attend was your own. But there you were. And it was a great day. And here you are all these years later, sitting in a little small church on a beautiful Wednesday evening when you could be doing any number of things with a Bible open on your lap, listening to a preacher, and hopefully glad that you're doing it. What happened to you? 
Was it you that made all the difference? Or was it that Jesus met you on some road of your sin and tamed your heart? So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And what mercy he has. Not only that he would send his son, that he would send his Holy Spirit into the highways and hedges of your life, to meet you on the road and to change your heart and your mind and to turn your feet heavenward. Not only that, but also that he would have sent his son into this world to empty himself, Philippians 2. To take on the form of a bondservant. To be made in the likeness of men and to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. The death of a cross for your sins and for mine. Never forget that those Events, too, are behind those words, God who has mercy. And then I want you to see that this sovereign mercy of God extended in Saul's life, not only to his initial conversion, but also in the Lord's keeping of him all along the way. We start to get a glimpse of that even here in these early events in Acts 9. Before Saul had ever even been baptized, and maybe before he was even fully aware of all that was happening to him, God had already mapped out a purpose for Saul's life, had he not? Isn't that what we read in verses 15 and 16? The Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord already had drawn up a plan for Saul's life. And I submit to you that the same is true of you. Now, none of us are called to the sorts of world-shaking ministry for which God has set apart Saul. But God does have a plan for you if you are his child. You, too, are his chosen instrument. Do you believe that? And do you believe that even though God has a plan for you, that plan may involve suffering, as it did for Saul. And are you okay with that? And do you believe that even if God's plan for you does involve suffering, as it did for Saul, that even then, God will be with you and will guide you and show you mercy? Do you believe that in the midst of whatever God has called you to do, He will meet you with help and kindness all along the way? That's the other big thing I noticed in reading through these verses in Acts 9. Just how God met Saul with sovereign kindness all along his journey in Christ. We can see that, I think, even as I said, beginning here in the early stages of Paul's faith. I think we can all see the difficulties that Saul was going to run into as a new Christian. Can't we? Ananias said it himself. Very well, in verses 13 and 14, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So in other words, God, how can you tell me to go and find Saul? How can you expect me to go and spend time with this fellow? This is going to be nothing but trouble for me. And if Ananias thought that way, then surely the people, the rest of the people in the church in Damascus would think that way as well, right? It was going to be a challenge for the church in Damascus or for the church anywhere else, for that matter, to trust this fellow Saul and welcome him into their midst. 
But look at how God cared for Saul by appearing to this man, Ananias, in a dream and reassuring him about Saul and sending him to minister to Saul, not only to restore his eyesight and to lay hands on him so that he received the Holy Spirit, verse 17, and to baptize him, verse 18, but also, presumably, somewhere between the lines of verse 19, Ananias also introduced Saul into the Damascus church and reassured the others that it really was okay. Because we read there in verse 19 that for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. God sent Saul a helper. And then Saul faced similar difficulties in verse 26 when he moved to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. And again, we can hardly blame them for thinking that way, right? But look at the intervention, again, that God provided through this man called Barnabas, verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And again, as we read on, we find that evidently they listened and they welcomed Saul into the church. And we're not told about Barnabas what we're told about Ananias. We're not told specifically that God spoke to Barnabas directly to encourage him to minister to Saul. But whether God spoke to Barnabas directly or not, Barnabas was surely another gift of the Lord, just like Ananias to his new servant, Saul. What mercy God showed him. And I don't doubt that many of you have had an Ananias or a Barnabas in your Christian life. Someone who welcomed you and showed you the ropes when you were wet behind the ears. Someone who gave you a chance when no one else would give you a chance. Someone who welcomed you or didn't give up on you in spite of what was in your past, perhaps. Someone who was a mentor to you early on. And I just want to say to you that that gift too, just like your conversion, was a gift from the sovereign hand of God. Yes, it involved human activity, just like your own believing on Christ involved your human activity. But God was the one behind the scenes, wasn't he, causing things to work together for good. Even these kindnesses, strewn like wildflowers all along your path, were planted by the Lord himself. How good God is to his children. And if we have a God like this, a good God, One who saved us, not because of our willing or our running, but because of his mercy. And if we have a God who has continued to intervene and do us good and send us help all along the way, we will not grow easily tired of speaking his praise to others. That was one of the effects of God's intervention in Saul's life here in Acts 9, wasn't it? He started speaking about Jesus. Look at verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, verse 20, and he immediately, excuse me, he, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is 
the Son of God. And then the same thing after he had moved to the church in Jerusalem. Verse 28, And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He began speaking about the Lord. So much so that both in Jerusalem and in Damascus, people tried to kill him for his preaching. Leading in Damascus to an escape worthy of a 007 movie, right? Verses 23 through 25, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Isn't that an amazing story? You'd think, though, after having to escape the city by night in a basket, Saul might have toned it down a little bit. But this was just the beginning of Saul's preaching, right? Only the beginning of his adventure. Because like the apostles before him, he could not stop speaking about what he had seen and heard. And eventually he took the news of Jesus all the way to Rome, maybe beyond. And I find it interesting that as Saul's story unfolds over the next two plus decades, both as we read it in the book of Acts, and as we read snippets of it in his letters to the churches, I find it interesting that while Saul never tired of preaching the old, old story of Jesus and his love, he also never seemed to grow tired of telling how that story intersected with his own story on the road outside Damascus that day. Two more times in this book of Acts, in chapter 22 and again in chapter 26, we find Saul retelling the events of Acts chapter 9 as a part of his presentation of the good news to others. He also gives the story in a much abbreviated fashion in Galatians 1 as well. Saul never forgot who he had been and how God had intervened to save him, and he never grew tired of telling the story. And I'd encourage you never to forget how God dealt with you either. Some of our stories, yes, are more dramatic than others. Some of us came from wilder backgrounds than others. Some of us can pinpoint the exact date and place where we were converted to Christ, while others of us simply know that it was around such and such a time in our lives that God, God began dealing with our souls. But whether the story is dramatic or quiet, whether you can pinpoint the exact date or not, never forget those all-important days or weeks or months in your life when God was at work to bring you to Jesus. Never forget how God intervened to bring you to himself. Remind yourself of the circumstances and of what God did. Remember perhaps the difficulties that God used to get your attention. Revisit the passages of scripture that God used to open your heart. Recall in your mind the people that God brought across your path to share Christ with you. Or maybe the particular sermon that God gave you that finally brought you over the line and onto the side of Christ. Recall the baptismal waters and what it was like to rejoice in the Lord as a brand new born believer. And maybe like Saul, rehearse those events not only for yourself but for others as a part of your wooing them to the same Jesus who wooed you. But most of all, give God the praise. 
learn to speak of your conversion using the language of the apostle. Learn to say things like, it was granted to me to believe in Jesus. God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And though I most certainly believed and ran to Christ as Lord and Savior, looking back now, I realize that it was God who gave me the want to and the strength even to do that. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy.